May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Well, today is the first Sunday after Trinity when we begin the second half of the church year in which the focus shifts from following in the footsteps of our Lord's earthly life to growing in our faith. We'll see that the readings will become more topical and less seasonal. We'll see a focus on growing in virtue and battling vice, all, of course, with the Lord's help. Our collect for today uh, that you will find on page 188 really sets the tone for the whole season. Um, and I do believe this is one of the collects that Archbishop Cranmer composed for the Book of Common Prayer himself. We pray, O oh God, the strength of all those who put their trust in thee... Mercifully accept our prayers, and because through the weakness of our mortal nature we can do no good thing without thee, grant us the help of thy grace, that in keeping thy commandments we may please thee, both in will and deed, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So we see this focus on keeping the commandments, walking in obedience and sanctification, but, the, the, but acknowledging that this is um, something we need God's help for that he needs to strengthen us. He needs to, to strengthen our weakness because he is the strength of all who put their trust in him. In his lectures to the Prayer Book Society, uh, Anglican theologian David Phillips identified a three-stage growth in virtue that has its roots in uh, some of the early Christian philosophy in the Greek-speaking world. Um, and, and this three, three-fold stage goes, first we have a purgation of sin, purging, our, purging us from sin. Then we have illumination by the gift of the Holy Spirit where we can see the truth of how things are in the light of the scriptures and in the light of the Holy Spirit. And then third, we have union with Christ. Over the next few months, we'll see how Trinity Tide actually does take us through that growth cycle, um, hitting specific virtues and specific vices in that cycle. But first, today, we're going to set the stage um, this week and next week by laying a foundation in love. In today's gospel reading, we see that the rich man, traditionally named Dives, which I think is just Latin for rich, is that, is that right? Yeah, okay, that's what I thought. <laughs> so the rich man whose name is Rich um, is failing to love his poor neighbor, Lazarus, and see where that gets him. And in our epistle, we see St. John expounding on what it means to love our brother and to love our neighbor. Sometimes we use the word love rather sloppily, don't we? We often use it too indiscriminately so that it loses all of its significance, after all, when I say that I love my wife, it means something quite different from when I say I love pizza or I love Star Wars. Uh, our English word love is so broad at times that it can be confusing. One of the last conversations I had with my late uncle Claudio, who passed away last year, was how important it is to properly define love, especially when we're speaking the gospel, when we're preaching the gospel. Can we truly speak about the love between newlyweds in the same way that we speak about the love we should have for our fellow man? And how about the love that God has for us and the love we're supposed to have for him? When our epistle says God is love, is St. John speaking of the same thing as the Beatles' famous song, All You Need Is Love? Well, in the scriptures, in the New Testament, we have three Greek words that can be translated as love. 
On the one hand, we have the word eros, which refers to a romantic or sexual love. In fact, Cupid, the Roman god of love, is known as eros in Greek. Second, we have the word phileo, often referred to as brotherly love. This is the affection between friends or family. Thayer's lexicon points out that it is an emotional love. It's essentially a feeling. And then finally, we have the word agape, which is an unconditional love. This sort of love is essentially a choice and is a higher form of love than the other two. Sometimes the King James Version uses the word charity to translate agape, most famously in the King James Version of 1 Corinthians 13. Of course, referring to a wider use of charity than we often do today. Throughout our epistle reading, the third love, agape, is what we're talking about. God's love is not just a feeling, it's not romantic love. Rather, it's unconditional, a choice, and is rooted in God's own nature. The fact that love flows from God's nature is of utmost importance to our understanding of the duty we have to love God and to love our neighbor. Last week was Trinity Sunday when we remember that we worship three persons who are one God, not three gods, not one person acting in three roles, but we have one God who is three persons. Each person is God, not merely a part of God. Each person is distinct. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son. Nevertheless, we have one God and not three. The unity of the three persons is such that Jesus can accurately say, I and the Father are one, even while remaining a distinct person from the Father. This is certainly confusing. We did talk about this a bit last week. It is confusing, but arithmetic doesn't limit God. It has often been said that we cannot comprehend the Trinity, but we can apprehend it. That is, we can't fully understand the doctrine, but we can affirm what Scripture tells us about it. And one of my favorite aspects of Trinitarian doctrine is the fact that it means that God is essentially relational. He doesn't need to create love. He has always loved. The Father has always loved the Son. The Son has always loved the Father. And as St. Augustine says, the Spirit has always been that personification of the love between the two. This is in part what St. John means when he says, God is love. He didn't have to create it. He didn't have to create us to have someone to love. He always has been love. And the love he has for us is an overflow of who he is. As St. John points out at the beginning of our epistle reading, this has profound implications for how we are supposed to treat each other. So let's look at verses 7 and 8. First uh, John, um, John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. And you can find that in your prayer book on page 189. Page 189. Beloved let, us one, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So in these two verses, the word agape, or one of its derivatives, is used seven times. St. John addresses us as beloved, those who are loved. Loved by whom? Well, by God, first and foremost. 
but also by the apostle. Because we are beloved, we can be then commanded to love one another. Only those who are loved can love. Why? Well, because love is from God, and whoever loves has been, been, has been born of God and knows God, as St. John wrote. Without being reborn, without being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we cannot love with the supernatural agape. When we are born of God, we will naturally know God and love our brothers with the same love with which God loves us. And if God's love does not bear fruit in the form of loving each other, the lack of fruit is proof that we don't know God. Why? Well, because as St. John said, God is love. He goes on, St. John goes on to show us how we know that God does does indeed love us. So let's look at verses 9 and 10. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So then the ultimate demonstration of God's love was the Father's willingness to send the Son and the Son's willingness to be sent, all for the purpose of becoming a bloody sacrifice for our propitiation. The word propitiation connotes atonement. In the Old Testament, atonement sacrifices restored the relationship between God and his people because, frankly, the people were prone to straying. They were prone to leaving God in their sins. I'm reminded especially of the Day of Atonement, which had two goats for the sacrifice. The first goat was literally sacrificed as a sin offering. Leviticus 16 tells us that its blood was to purify the temple and the people from the uncleanness of the people's sins. Did you catch that? The people's sins made the temple unclean, and it needed to be purified as well, not just the people. Hebrews 9 reminds us that under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's 9.22 in the book of Hebrews. But there is a second goat also on the Day of Atonement. That's the scapegoat who is exiled into the wilderness after the high priest confesses the iniquities, sins, and transgressions of the people and then lays them on on the head of the scapegoat. Well, our Lord Jesus fulfills both of these goats. He sheds his blood upon the cross to purify us from our sins and purify that temple of the Holy Spirit too, right? And then he takes our sins upon himself as he's exiled to the grave, only to rise again as proof that he, that he is greater than the world, the flesh, and the devil, and he is able to atone for our sins. So make no mistake, this is an act of love on Jesus' part and on the Father's part. A traditional reading for the Day of Atonement is the binding of Isaac from Genesis 22, in which Abraham shows his love for God by by being willing to sacrifice his beloved son. Do you think Abraham really wanted to do that? No, he did it because he loved God. And we also see that Isaac shows his love for Abraham and for God by being willing to be sacrificed. And God shows his love for Abraham and Isaac by providing a ram to be sacrificed in their stead. Sometimes we look at our old picture Bibles from when we were kids and we see like Isaac as a little kid. 
Um, the, the language of the Hebrew, and pretty much every Hebrew scholar agrees, that Isaac is at least a teenager, if not a full-grown man by this point. Um, he could have taken the old man, but he willingly was bound and put on the altar um, so that he would also be obedient to God. And then, of course, God loves Abraham and Isaac by providing that ram. Abraham is a type of God the Father, and Isaac and the ram are both types of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's pick up back in our epistle, verses 11 and 12. St. John writes, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. When we're loved by God, that love bears fruit as our love for each other. His love in us allows others to see God working in us. And indeed, our love for each other is proof that God lives in us and has loved us with that perfect love of his son, Jesus Christ. Again, the love in this passage is agape, that divine love that is a choice. We don't love each other because we always feel like it. We love each other because we have been empowered by God's love to choose to love each other. This is a choice that we have to exercise every day. When we fail to love each other, God then calls us to repent and to try again and, and calls us to be secure in his love for us, confident that he both calls us and keeps us in his love. Or as the apostle put it in Hebrews 12, Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. The amazing thing about God's agape love is that it then sanctifies the often mixed motives of the other two loves. Our emotional affection for our friends from Phileo becomes true Christian brotherhood. <clears throat> Seeing out with those words of Psalm 133, Behold how good and a joyful thing it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. For there the Lord promises blessing and life forevermore. The blood of Christ that binds us as his family, as spiritual brothers and sisters, becomes the thickest blood of all. And then God's agape love also takes the eros found in Christian marriage, that fiery love that is so powerful that it sometimes needs a name nine months later. God's, God's agape makes that eros into a picture of Christ and his church. Ever since the fall, the one flesh unity has been perverted into selfish domination or into selfish rebellion. But St. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that a Christian husband loves his wife with the same sacrificial, sanctifying love that Christ has for the church. That it, he tells us that a Christian husband should love his wife as if she were her, his very own body, being willing to lay down his life, lay aside his life for her sake. And he also tells us that a Christian wife should submit to her husband similar to how the church submits to Christ. Not a submission of distrust and fear, but a submission that is born of being loved and loving in return. <clears throat> this is the love that is big enough to change the world. Indeed, that's the love that has changed the world. Bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to all the corners of the globe. And we see all the good things that come with that, right? Um, the pagan world did not know orphanages and hospitals and, um, and, and, uh, and caring for widows. The pagan world didn't do that. That's something that we did. 
It didn't know schooling for everybody. That's something that we did. But that love, that agape love, is also the love that is small enough to work miracles in an individual, in a family, or in a parish. In verse 19 of our epistle, St. John says, We love because he first loved us. So, beloved in Christ, go and love your God and love your neighbor just as you have been loved. And we say this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.